You can hear me. Good. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to the Gospel of Mark, please? Gospel of Mark. We will be getting there uh, very soon. Um, I hope you all managed to have a good summer break. Uh, managed to get away, enjoy the sunshine, hang out with family and friends, have a staycation, have a vacation, whatever. We had a lovely time away as a family, but summers always have a few oddities that come into them, and one of the oddities of this summer for us was my youngest son, Asher, uh, announced at the beginning of the summer that he had a goal for our sort of summer period when he'd finished work. Oh, sorry, finished school. And he said, I've got this time off. I've got a goal for the summer. And that is to learn to solve Enro Rubik's Cube. And that's what he said to us. He said, I'm going to learn to solve the Rubik's Cube. And I was kind of like, all right. I never learnt when I was his age. And he set himself the task to work out the key to unlock the Rubik's Cube. And he got a book here, and it's called How to Solve the Rubik's Cube. And he read it, and he studied it, and he got his cube, and he was practicing day after day. And the way they do it in the book is they, they learn it in like phases, in sections. You learn this bit, and then you learn the next bit, and you learn the next bit. And then about a week ago, he came to me, and he said, Daddy, here's the Rubik's Cube. And he got it to me, and he, he said, scramble it. So I made it all a mess to a point where there's no way I'd ever be able to solve it. And I mucked it up. And he gave it back to me and said, Daddy, I'm going to solve it. And he just sat down at our kitchen table and went. And I'd gone back upstairs. I'd come downstairs to make a cup of tea. I was working. And next thing I know is a knock at the door. And my youngest son walks in and goes, there you go, Daddy. I've solved the Rubik's Cube. And it was like, this is amazing. High fives all around. And what he had done is he had worked out, he had learned the keys to grant him success in solving the Rubik's Cube. And now he keeps practicing. He keeps coming back, just muck it up. And now he can do it. And he started timing himself. How quickly can he solve the cube? And for us today, what we're going to be looking at as we start this new series in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at the, today at the key to understanding the whole Gospel. If you want to have success in our study of the Gospel, if you want to understand what the Gospel is about, you need to know the key to make it happen. And so what we're going to look at today is the first section of Mark's Gospel, and we're going to learn something that will help us as we study the Gospel throughout the coming year. So we're going to have a little bit of background. First thing about the author and the date. Now, Mark's Gospel... One of four Gospels we find at the beginning of our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was written by a man named Mark, or John Mark, he's sometimes referred to. Uh, and he's, he had a mother, a mother called Mary, and he was a member of the early church we find in Jerusalem. We go to Acts chapter 12, he turns up. He accompanied the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts on their first missionary journey. So some of the stuff we read in the book of Acts he saw firsthand. He was part of that crew. We find out later he ends up as uh, one of the disciples in Rome along with Peter. And that's Peter, one of the disciples, a leader disciple, a friend of Jesus. So he was with Peter, we find, in 1 Peter 5. And we believe that from his friendship with Peter is where he got his stories that he wrote down in the gospel. So he was talking to an eyewitness to some of these stories. And, and often it's referred to, Mark is referred to as Peter's memoirs. So these are the things that Peter went through, Peter saw, and then Mark wrote it down for us to read. It was written in Rome uh, for Gentile believers around AD 60. 
and it is believed to be the first of the four Gospels written. It comes second in our Bible, but actually chronologically it was the first one that was actually put, pen was put to scroll, so to speak. It was written at a time of official persecution under the Emperor Nero, which actually resulted in the death of Peter and Paul later after him. So it was a time of persecution for the church, but he was writing down what Jesus had said and done for the strengthening of the believers there. Themes and styles we'll find as we go through this gospel. It's the shortest of the four gospels that we have in our Bible, just 16 chapters, but the focus of it unashamedly is the Lord Jesus. And he is portrayed in a particular way. He's portrayed as a man of action, a man of movement, a man of things happening. If you go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll find the phrases immediately or at once about 40 times, over 40 times of this, like this happened, and then immediately this happened, and then this happened, and at once Jesus did this. And so there's an energy and an activity about this Gospel. Jesus is shown as a man of authority in his uh, healing of the sick, his power over the demonic, his um, power over creation, his power over the Sabbath. He makes proclamations about how the Sabbath would be, over the law in contradiction to the oral traditions of the elders of Israel. Jesus knows the law and his teaching generally, people were amazed at it. So he teaches with such authority. And again and again, it is demonstrated through the gospel. We see Jesus as a servant in this gospel, particularly in reference to the suffering servant we read about in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus is a servant who will suffer and that will come up again and again. And he's also displayed as the Son of God. If you look at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, which we're going to do today, and then go to the very end of Mark's gospel, it is bookended by two proclamations that Jesus was and is the Son of God. You find that uh, in Mark 15. We also see it again at his baptism and transfiguration, his proclamation of who he is. There are themes throughout the book. There's a theme of discipleship, where it's particularly those who were with Jesus. The disciples are described as those who were with him, those who knew him, those who were near him, those who traveled with him, and they were then to see him, they were to hear him, and then they were to follow and do likewise. We find another theme of faith running throughout the gospel, which faith is basically seeing and hearing and believing who Jesus was and what he said. And there'll be those who demonstrate faith because they put their trust in Jesus and they acknowledge him, and there'll be those who do not demonstrate faith because they reject him and they say, no, we will not believe you. And it's often surprising who those people are. The people who should have faith don't, and the people who do have faith maybe shouldn't. There's a theme throughout the gospel of insiders and outsiders, and this is in reference to God's kingdom. There are those who are inside the kingdom of God, and there are those who are outside of the kingdom of God. And what we find often is the people who should be inside the kingdom of God, those who should know better, the religious leaders, the teachers, actually find themselves outside the kingdom because they reject it. And then you find those who should be outside the kingdom because of their tax collectors and sinners, kind of more the dregs of society, but actually they find themselves inside the kingdom of God because they accept and trust and see who Jesus is and repent of their sins and follow him. We find another theme going through the gospel of the Gentiles. Uh, it was written in Rome, a lot of Gentile believers, non-Jews, which is in contrast to Matthew's gospel, which is written more to a Jewish audience. But we find Jesus in more Gentile areas, interacting with Gentiles um, and coming across that. So that comes through the book. We also find a theme running through, this, a theme of secrecy. See if you can spot it as we go through. Because Jesus often tells people not to tell anyone else what's happened. 
He might have healed them, set them free, and he says to them, just don't tell anyone. Well, that's about. Well, the point of that is, is that the expectations of who Jesus was meant to be by the kind of the Israel, Israel as a people were in contradiction for who Jesus actually was. And so Jesus often tells them to stop. I'm not the kind of person you think I am. I'm not going to do the things you expect me to do. And actually, it only comes to, to light. He only comes into his fullest revelation after his death and resurrection. And so we find Jesus telling people to be quiet about him because they haven't got the full revelation. They don't fully understand his mission yet. And the final one is it's a theme of journey, beginning in verse 2, where actually it's all about a journey, the way. And we find in Mark Jesus moving from place to place to place and ultimately to the place of Jerusalem and his death on the cross and all that means. And often the disciples are moving from one place to the other and Jesus is teaching them on the way. So there's lots to look out for there. The structure of Mark, the, the structure of Mark is, is quite straightforward. It kind of falls in two halves. You have the first eight chapters which take place in Galilee in around uh, where Jesus lived, lots of things happening there. And you get to chapter 8, sort of towards the end of the chapter, and you find the key moment of the gospel, the hinge of the gospel, the pivot point of the gospel, where Jesus speaks to Peter and he says, who do you say I am? And then Peter goes off and says, well, some people say this. And, some people, and he said, no, 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 Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter has a revelation. He says, you are the Christ and at that point, everything changes. And there's a couple of chapters there in the middle where they're turning, so they're moving from Galilee. They have a couple of chapters in the middle where they're on the way. And then the final section of Mark's gospel is all about Jerusalem and Jesus' time in Jerusalem, moving towards his death on the cross. So we have kind of two halves of the gospel. Galilee, on the way, and then into Jerusalem of what happens there. So that's what's going to happen. Now, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be studying Mark... Um, for the best part of a year, because we're going to go through the whole lot bit by bit. We'll have some breaks for Christmas and Easter uh, and a few other things, but we're just going to go through this bit by bit, and we're going to do what we can to help you study the gospel, uh, to learn, to look it up. And one thing I'm just going to recommend um, today that you can get your hands on is this. I found these super, super helpful when it's studying my Bible. And they are um, script, they're called scripture journals, and basically what they have is they have the Bible on one side, and then a blank page on the other. Now, these aren't blank because I've written on them. But this is a blank page on this side and then the scripture this side. So this is actually your Bible. And what I've done is I, when I studied the book of Mark back in 2019, it says here in the dates, I basically read through the book of Mark and I got to draw all over the text, underline important bits, and then just take my notes at the side. And these are brilliant. So in our study of Mark, I would thoroughly recommend you getting one of these Using it as just a study, you can write sermon notes, you can write your own notes, you can doodle on the text, that's a key word, I'll underline that, I'll make a little asterisk on there, that's what I've got. And so these are super helpful. I've done these in Mark, I'm doing one in 2 Corinthians, I've done Isaiah, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Philippians, Acts, um, and a bunch of others. So I found these so super helpful. And I have 10 copies to give away today. So there's five there and five there, come and grab them if you want them. Uh, if we run out, I'm happy to get more. But they are brilliant to help you. No elbows, just grab them. If we run out, talk to me and I will get you another copy. Um, okay, where are we? Math, uh, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read today's text together. Oh, it's on the, it's on the screen behind me. Fantastic. So let's read this again. We're going to publicly read Scripture together. This is our verse for today. 
Mark 1, verse 1. It says, 1, 2, 3, go. Okay, because it's so short and you're really good at it. Let's try, should we do that again? Let's, let's read this. One, two, three, go. Okay, that's our text for this morning. Mark 1, verse 1. Big idea. Mark's gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Remember what I said about finding the key with the Rubik's Cube? This is the key to Mark's gospel. This first line. Now, when they used to write in the ancient worlds, did some research, historians tell us often there was two ways of starting a text if you were writing it. You can write it as a dedication to someone, or you can write uh, an opening line which describes the purpose of what you're writing. If you read Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel begins with a de- dedication to most excellent Theophilus, and we find that was in Acts, part two. And that was to a person. Mark does the other one. He describes its purpose, its subject, what it's about. Some people, uh, in some of the kind of research I've done, they said actually this is almost like the title of the book. If you're going to have a, make a book and you're going to put a title on it, it wouldn't necessarily be the Gospel of Mark. It would be these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're just going to go through this this morning. And first we're going to look at the first word there, beginning. The beginning. Now, Mark begins his gospel with this word beginning, and there is another book in the Bible that begins the same way, which is, I heard it over here, Genesis. And Genesis starts in the beginning, kind of same idea, in the beginning. And Mark deliberately chooses these words as a reminder of Genesis. Now, how does Genesis begin? Genesis is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's basically the creation of all things. Everything happens at the beginning of Genesis in those first few words, and then the author there goes on to describe what that looks like. Mark is alluding to that as he begins his gospel. And what he's doing is absolutely staggering when you think about it. He's saying, what I'm going to tell you is on a par with the creation of everything. And when we're talking about like ranks of importance, I think the creation of everything would be pretty high up when you think about it. Because if you haven't got anything, then you can't do nothing. Terrible English, but you get the point. So that's right up there with the creation of the world, all that is unseen and all that is seen. And Mark is saying, what I'm going to tell you is on that level. What I'm going to talk to you about is that important. And so when he says the beginning, the readers is like perked up and like, "Uh uh-oh, we've got something big coming here. This is huge. And the answer, if you say, well, it's the beginning, Mark, beginning of what? Well, that can be summed up in one one word. Jesus. Mark is linking... The coming of Jesus with the creation of everything, and he's putting them on the same level. He's saying the fact that Jesus has come is so huge, so big, so world-altering, that it's up there with the creation of the world. And so as readers, we need to pay attention 
to what he's saying. It's not something to just be glossed over and dismissed like we're reading a storybook. No, this is something huge. And Jesus, uh, sorry, Mark says three things about Jesus. I'm going to go through them each in turn. He says, Jesus is the best news ever. He is the long-awaited king, and he is God come to earth. So he begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Now, gospel is just a word. It means good news, and it was something that was used in the ancient world for uh, um, something good that had happened. It could have been a victory in battle. The army has won, vanquished the enemies. That's gospel. It's good news. They won. It could be um, at the birth of um, a new leader, ruler, or the ascension of a new ruler, saying this person is now ruling. That's great news. And in the ancient world, it was used for many things in many situations, but they were always, is always a plural, because it was one among many. We have lots of good news in your life. If you think about good news that comes into your life, it's lots of different things. But Paul uses it in the singular here. Not Paul, sorry, Mark. Mark uses it in the singular. He says this is the good news. Singular, uno. This is the best news. This news is greater than any other news. This news is the news that just tops out everything. If we had a front page of our newspaper, that makes me sound old, website, this would always be the headline. There wouldn't be, nothing else could ever come close to that. Because this is the good news. And for Mark, the gospel isn't so much a book. We often use that term in church circles because we have four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's how he refers to them. I've used it today, the gospel according to Mark, gospel, Mark's gospel. But actually, it's a story about a person, Jesus. That's what it all. And this story is about Jesus coming, God's reign breaking in, his promises being fulfilled. A new age has dawned. And so this truly is the best news ever. And so when we look at Mark's gospel, we're going to find that basically the whole thing is about Jesus. There's a couple of short sections that are about John the Baptist, but basically everything else in that gospel is all about Jesus. And so Mark is putting the coming of Jesus on the same level as the creation of the world, and this is good news. There is something great about this. And so that begs the question, well, what's so good about this news, which brings us to the second thing he says. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, Jesus means God is salvation, which is a clue to where this is going, but the Christ is the bit we're going to focus on. Christ is not his surname, just to be, just to be clear. It is a title. Sometimes he's referred to as Christ Jesus, which kind of helps us with that title. It's a title. It's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word which means uh, Messiah. Sorry, Messiah is a Hebrew word and it means anointed one. So Christos, Messiah, they mean the same thing, anointed one. Now, the whole idea of anointing looks back to our Old Testament and in our Old Testament, if we go there, we find that certain individuals were anointed with oil in preparation um, of, of getting into an office, prophet, priest, king. And they were anointed with oil to do it. And that anointing uh, represented the power of the Holy Spirit being set apart, being consecrated for service. We saw this when we looked at Leviticus at the beginning of the year. The priests anointed with oil. 
and that was part of the getting ready for service and being empowered. And at the time of Jesus, there was a growing expectation that this anointed one, this Messiah, would come to his people. There have been individuals throughout history that had served as prophets, priests, and kings, but actually there was one coming, and this was born on prophetic promises we read in our Old Testament, and there was an expectation among Israel, they were looking out for their Messiah. When's the Messiah going to come? Because they were in a real bind. The Romans had come, had taken over their country, uh, and so they were an occupied nation. They hated the Romans. They didn't want them there. And they were living in an expectation that one who was like their greatest king, David, the mighty warrior who killed Goliath, he would come again. Someone in his line of his ilk, he would come and he would get rid of the Romans and he would establish God's kingdom, establish Israel, worship at the temple, everything would be good. And Mark identifies Jesus as that person. He's saying, this is the one. This is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the one who's going to come. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the king that we got. This is the one who's going to bring in God's kingdom. Spoiler. What? The way Jesus was going to do it isn't the way they were expecting, which is what caused the problems. Jesus was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited king. He has come to deal with Israel's problem and establish a new king. But Israel's problem wasn't Rome. Israel's problem was their sin and rebellion against God. And that was true for all mankind. And Jesus came as the Messiah who was going to deal with that He was going to deal with the greatest problem by dying in our place for our sin on the cross and then rising victorious and offering everyone to come to him and be a part of his new kingdom. So Jesus is very squarely squarely identified as this long-awaited king, but at the same time, Mark has got some news to tell people and say, actually, it's not the way that you think. It's not the way Israel has been expecting Jesus lines up with the prophetic promises, but not just the ones about a great mighty king, but also ones about a suffering servant who will come and lay down his life on behalf of his people. So Jesus is this great news, the best news ever. He is this long-awaited king. And finally, it says, Jesus is God come to earth. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. That's the last thing Mark wants to highlight in his opening. Now, uh, history tells us that the term sons of God was common in um, the ancient Near East. And what they referred to that sons of God were were men, uh, women who had extraordinary abilities above the norm. It was used to refer to heroes and rulers and poets and philosophers and people who had that extra level of something that made them stand out. And people will be like, wow, they are amazing because of whatever it is. And people would celebrate them and they'd build statues of them and all that kind of stuff. And they were sons of God because of their just impressive nature. By contrast, what does Mark refer to Jesus as? The son of God. Singular. Jesus was not just one among many incredible people to walk the earth. He stands in a category alone. 
He is above the moment. He is the Son of God. And this speaks of a relationship between him and God, between Father and Son, but not a human relationship where the Son is lesser than the Father, but actually one where they are equal. So Jesus, uh, Mark is pointing squarely to Jesus as God himself, God the Son, second person of the Trinity. He is God come to earth. And so when you go back to that verse, you go back in the beginning, God created everything, and then by the end of the verse, we find God stepping into his creation. God himself, who created everything, has now stepped into his creation. And so when we look at Jesus, Jesus isn't just this long-awaited king like a David, seen people like that before. He is God himself come into creation to lead his people into freedom. That's who Mark is pointing to. He has taken on human form. So when we look at Jesus, Jesus is both fully man, so he can identify with us, but he is also at the same time fully God. He is the one, the perfect relationship between man and God. And he has this unique relationship with God the Father. We see this coming out in Mark's gospel. We'll get it to Maybe next week. I think I'm trying to remember which order they're going. But next week, because we've got, where's the big one? Where God speaks to him? We had it just before uh, uh, summer. We got nine of them up here, didn't we? And we did that. Baptism. Where the God, God the Father speaks and affirms his son. The second one is on the mountain when Moses and Elijah appear with him. And we have the transfiguration where God the Father affirms his son. And we see that relation coming out. And so Mark is at the beginning of this gospel pointing so clearly that this is God. He has come to earth to save his people. So let me just summarize where we've got to this morning. We've seen verse 1 of this gospel. We will speed up, by the way. (laughs) Some of you have already done the mass. There's 16 chapters. There's about 30 verses a chapter. If we do this, I'll be dead before... We get to the end of Mark. We're going to speed up. But we've done the first verse here. I particularly wanted to take time just to set it up where we're going. This gospel of Mark's is centered securely, firmly, totally around the person of Jesus. And the coming of Jesus is the best news ever. It is the gospel. It is the greatest news that we have the privilege of knowing and the privilege of proclaiming to the world. Jesus is the long-awaited king. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's come to lead God's people into God's kingdom. He's going to deal with the greatest problem man has, which is our sin and our rebellion before God. He's going to deal with that so that we sinful people can stand righteous before a holy God. And also Jesus is God himself. That's what enables him to be that long-awaited king, that perfect sacrifice. He is God come to earth to save and redeem his creation. In short, Mark's gospel is all about Jesus. Can you see what we did with the the series title there? It's all about Jesus. Now, what we're going to do is have a bit of response. If those who were here last week, we, uh, I spoke a bit about kind of where we want to head in the next 10 years as a church, having done our first 10, looking forward and having this, um, we need to grow up and we've got this question 
um, that does it help us have a relationship with Jesus. And the reason we're studying this gospel at this moment and calling it what it is is because the study of Mark's gospel will help you grow a relationship with Jesus. And what we're going to do is as we go through this gospel, we're going to teach you, we're going to give you tools, we're going to give you guidance, we're going to give you help for how to get the most out of God's Word, not just for this gospel, but, but beyond. When we finish this and move on to whatever God says, talk about next, you'll have skills and ways of looking at God's Word to be able to read it for yourself and interact with Jesus and hopefully through that grow more like him. And so when it comes to reading your Bible, studying God's Word, does it help you grow a relationship with Jesus? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, it does, but you have to come at it with an attitude of faith and humility and diligence and say, I'm going to do it. And so we're going to give some things. I've given out those. Oh, they've all gone. If you want a copy and you haven't got one, come to me. We'll get you a copy of those scripture journals. They're really helpful. If they work for you, use them. What I'd love you to do this week is to take that verse. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, I just did it from memory there. I was looking. You can do it. You can learn things. Look at that. Meditate on that. Think about that. Jot things down each day when you kind of you think about what does that remind me of? Where does that lead me? Does it lead me to another part of the Bible? Does it just lead me to a thought about who he is or what he's done in my life or how I can thank him? Start doing that. Start learning. And then more importantly, once you've learned something, tell someone. That's a great thing. Oh, I just got this day. Stick it on the WhatsApp group in your life group or your tell your friend at work or whatever, just learn from this and grow and then pass on what you've done. So as we study Mark's gospel, we're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to put our focus on him. We're going to grow our relationship with him and in turn become more and more like him. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to pray. The band could come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs Get our eyes on Jesus, and then we're going to share bread and wine uh, together. If you haven't come and got one of the little cups just to help us, come and grab one now, because we're just going to roll into it uh, in the worship time. Um, There's some gluten-free stuff there um, for the if you need that for the wafers. Um, But that's what we can do. So, do you want to stand? And I'm going to pray. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. Lord Jesus, we want to just lift our eyes, lift our hearts to you now. And we want to echo with Mark, who wrote all those years ago in the midst of trials and persecution, that it's all about you. That it's all about you. And all means all. Lord God, we want to praise you that it's all about you. We want to thank you for your coming, Lord Jesus, that when you came, everything changed. Everything changed. That event was cataclysmic in the history of the world. Because you came as the long-awaited king, as you came as God the Son to earth, you changed everything dealt with our sin and our shame. You ushered in your kingdom. You called a people to yourself. 
oh Lord Jesus, and we are part of that. And we want to say thank you for that. And we want to say, God, that is the best news ever that sinful man can come and know a holy God and have relationship with him. That we can know you as Father just like Jesus did because we are now in him. Not because we've earned it, but because you have chosen to give that to us. Lord Jesus, and we thank you and we praise you and we worship you.